Hi guys, thanks for joining me for chapter 3 of our audio tour of Oxford. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at the area surrounding the Sheldonian Theatre, which features the Divinity School, the Clarendon Building, the Bridge of Sighs, and of course the world-famous Bodleian Library. While you don't need to listen to these podcasts in order, I would certainly recommend that you do. However, if you don't mind diving straight into the middle of the tour, do feel free to. As ever, there's lots more information that can be found on historylix.com. And with that said, let's get cracking. Immediately to the east of the Museum of the History of Science sits a small wooden door, which leads into the walled-off area that surrounds the Sheldonian Theatre. This door, along with the wall in which it sits, have been standing there since the 1670s. I'm sure you'll notice the large stone heads adorning the wall, known as the emperors. These were supposedly intended to resemble the emperors of the Roman Empire. They were carved by a local stonemason by the name of William Byrd, who, unfortunately, hadn't the slightest clue what the Roman emperors actually looked like. As a consequence, his busts looked nothing like them. As you head through the gate and keep right, heading towards the Divinity School, take a look at the stone stairs to your right-hand side. These formed the main entrance to what used to be the Ashmolean, the world's oldest purpose-built museum. Unlike most of the stone in Oxford, the stone on these stairs has not been very carefully maintained, and as a consequence, the various names, dates, and other pieces of graffiti that have been carved into the stone over the centuries are still visible. My favourite bit sits at the top of the stairs, on the right-hand side at eye level. You can see the graffiti of a student called Charles Simpson, who carved his name and the date on that stone back on the 22nd of June, 1734. See if you can spot it. After that, continue walking down towards the Divinity School. Construction of this magnificent Gothic building began in 1427, though the project wasn't actually completed until 1483. The Divinity School occupies the ground floor, while the second story is home to the 15th century Duke Humphreys Library. The interior of the Divinity School was the main reason the project took so long to finish. If you walk up to the windows, you'll see the extraordinary fan-vaulted ceiling, which features 455 crests of the various families and colleges that donated to have the enormously expensive project completed. When it was finally completed in 1483, the Divinity School became the first purpose-built classroom of the University of Oxford, and it regularly hosted lectures and exams. Exams back in those days were very different to the ones that we know today. For example, there was no writing involved. The exams took the form of oral debates between one student and a number of tutors. The exams were all conducted in Latin, a tradition that actually continued until as recently as 1885, the last year in which all first-year students sat exams in Latin. These exams could also last an awfully long time, hours and hours on end. Perhaps the worst thing about them, though, is that the majority of the Divinity School, about two-thirds of it, was actually reserved for spectators who would come to watch the students and tutors wage their intellectual wars. Such was the state of live entertainment back in those days. Over the years, the Divinity School has had a number of purposes. It's hosted Parliament on a number of occasions, it acted as the courtroom during the trial of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and the other Oxford martyrs, and it even featured in several Harry Potter films. Nowadays, it's used pretty infrequently by the university, though it does host the gowning during doctoral graduation ceremonies. While most of the time is spent in the Sheldonian Theatre just opposite, at the midpoint of the ceremony, those receiving their doctorates head out of the theatre and walk through the large wooden doors that form the entrance of the Divinity School. As they walk in, they each pause and take a moment to look upwards and read the inscription on the small stone book peering down from the top of the archway. 
In ancient Greek, the biblical inscription reads from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 46. They found him sitting amongst the teachers. Across from the Divinity School sits the magnificent Sheldonian Theatre. Completed in 1668, it was designed by the famed architect Sir Christopher Wren, who'd been an undergraduate student at Wadham College, just a stone's throw away. The story of the theatre starts in the early 1660s, when the Chancellor of the University, Gilbert Sheldon, felt that an impressive, new, purpose-built facility was required for the Conference of Degrees. As the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Sheldon was a very powerful and wealthy man, and following several unsuccessful attempts to raise funds, he ended up funding the entire project himself. He commissioned Wren to design a theatre that could seat 1,500 people. At that time, the only theatres of that size that had ever been constructed had been open to the elements and had been built by the ancients in warmer climates like Rome and Greece. Wren based his design for the Sheldonian on the Marcellus Theatre in Rome, with one critical difference, the addition of a roof. 16th century architectural technology had only developed two methods for the construction of the roof of size and weight that was required. The first involved columns and pillars to provide some sort of interior structural support, though these would of course have restricted the views for some of the spectators sitting inside the theatre. The other was to have a large domed ceiling, much like you might see atop a Gothic cathedral. Wren dismissed these two strategies and used a revolutionary new system known as a geometrical flat floor, which relied on a network of interconnected thick wooden beams that supported both their own weights and the weight of the roof. When it was finally completed, the Sheldonian Theatre featured the largest unsupported flat ceiling that had ever been constructed. It became the host to just about every major ceremony at the University of Oxford, and it became home of the Oxford University Press, which occupied the basement. The total cost of the project came to a staggering £14,470, in an era when a mid-level craftsman's wage would have been roughly £2 annually. To this day, every student at the University of Oxford will attend at least two ceremonies at the Sheldonian. The first, their matriculation, which is essentially a registration ceremony occurring during your first week at Oxford. The second is, of course, your graduation, which occurs at the end of each student's time at the university. We'll be talking about each of these ceremonies in a later episode. Continuing eastwards, you'll see the Bridge of Sighs directly in front of you, and the Clarendon Building to your left. The Clarendon building was designed by architect Nicholas Hawksmore and constructed between 1711 and 1715 due to the fact that the Oxford University Press, at the time contained in the basement of the Sheldonian Theatre, was really rather noisy and, unsurprisingly, not particularly well suited to operation immediately beneath a theatre. The Clarendon building housed the press for just over a century, until 1820, when OUP moved to its current premises in Jericho, a trendy suburb of the city centre, about a 15-minute walk to the north. Since then, the Clarendon building has been used for office space for senior academics and administrative staff. In its central archway, you can see a list of major donors to the university, which features some rather reprehensible and controversial names. How much money would you need to donate to have your name up on that board? Well, you'll have to go to historylix.com to find out. We now come to the famous Bridge of Sighs, said to be the most photographed landmark in all of Oxford. You may well have seen other bridges of size elsewhere. There are several other versions around the world, in stunning cities like Venice and Copenhagen, and also in tacky places like Las Vegas and Cambridge. The original sits in Venice, and it was so named because it used to connect the courthouse of the city with its jail. Prisoners would be handed down their sentences, and, while making their way across the bridge, would enjoy their last views of the outside world, before descending to some miserable prison cell to begin their sentences. 
Certainly, an interesting story behind the name, though anyone familiar with the Venetian bridge may notice that the Oxonian edition far more closely resembles another one of Venice's bridges, the Ponte Rialto. The reason this Oxford bridge shares the name, and indeed the reason it was built in the first place, is because the University of Cambridge built one first. That most fierce of rivals, known affectionately in Oxford as the other place, or, depending on who you talk to, the C-word, had a bridge constructed in 1831 in St John's College. Students began to refer to it as the Bridge of Size as they would cross it on the journey to their tutor's rooms for lessons and for exams. Despite the fact that no one in Oxford would admit it, the bridge in Cambridge is actually stunningly beautiful. It crosses the River Cam, it's in a very sunny part of the city and it usually has this beautiful golden glow to it. There's a tree right next to it and luscious green fields on one side. It also boasts the interesting accolade of having been Queen Victoria's favourite bridge. Oxford, not ever happy to be one-upped by their northerly rivals, put forward plans to have an Oxonian bridge constructed, and it was eventually completed in 1913. This bridge connects two halls of Hartford College, and is occasionally said to be three inches longer and wider than the Cambridge Bridge, and therefore more impressive. While this claim is factually inaccurate, it's important for the residents of Oxford to have something to cling on to, because the bridge is made somewhat redundant by the fact that it crosses a very quiet, paved, pedestrianised street. It does, however, look very pretty. From where you're standing, there are a couple of things that I'd like to bring to your attention. If you peer just beneath the bridge, you'll see to the left a tiny alleyway between the yellow stone of Hartford College and the red brick of astronomer Edward Halley's old home. It doesn't look like the sort of alleyway that would be worth exploring, but it certainly is. Known as St Helen's Passageway, or colloquially, Hell's Passage, that alleyway will lead you down to the Turf Tavern, one of the oldest and most well-hidden pubs in Oxford. It has been open since at least 1381, and has quite a few claims to fame. One involves a young William Jefferson Clinton, who was a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford in the late 1960s. Just prior to his first presidential campaign, Mr Clinton was accused of smoking marijuana during his time at Oxford. He admitted that he had, but he made it very clear that he did not inhale. This event is said to have taken place at the Turf Tavern, and it's memorialised on a board in the pub garden. Mr Clinton would of course go on to develop quite a knack for getting himself out of tricky situations, and the Turf Tavern is proud to have been a part of that history. Another ex-world leader and old Rhodes Scholar of the University of Oxford, Bob Hawke, Prime Minister of Australia, made history at the Turf Tavern in 1954, when he set a world record for drinking a yard of ale, which is about three pints, in just under 11 seconds. Finally, just to the north of the bridge, or to your left as you look at it with the Sheldonian Theatre behind you, sits the hexagonal Roundhouse, now the junior common room of Hartford College. This building was once a bastion on the city wall of Oxford. I've actually created a map of where the city wall of Oxford once sat, along with photographs and some other information, which honestly is really interesting. You can find it on the History Licks website, of course, and my thanks go out to the guys at OxfordHistory.com for the work they've put in to dig up all of that old information. Heading south down Catch Street, you will see the glorious Bodleian Library, technically now named the Old Bodleian Library. You can enter through the large wooden doors opposite the entrance of Hartford College. This is the original central library of the University of Oxford, and it was founded in 1602, following a large donation of money and books from a man called Thomas Bodley. Bodley had been a student at Merton College, and in later life he had come to marry a very wealthy young widow. Like many before him and many to come, he decided to donate a large amount of money to his old university. Bodley had a particular purpose in mind, to construct a new library, which would be one of the greatest of the age. And he had good reason to, 
For in 1599, the Duke Humphreys Library, at that time the largest at the university, had a total collection of just three volumes. There were a number of reasons for this, and most of them are a consequence of King Henry VIII's inability to keep his pants on. The tumultuous period to which I'm referring is now known to history as the English Reformation, and in case you haven't heard of it, we're going to take a very quick crash course. The origins of this period begin in the early years of Henry's reign, with him married to a Spanish princess called Catherine of Aragon. Over nearly 20 years of marriage, Catherine and Henry were unable to produce a son. Henry became very concerned that their marriage would never yield him a male heir, and he began to explore the idea of finding a new, younger, and more attractive wife. The problem was that back in the 16th century, divorce was a very tricky subject. It was extremely difficult to obtain a divorce, and they occurred exceptionally rarely. Henry needed to obtain permission from the Pope in Rome, and for this he needed a very good reason. He thought he had one. Catherine had initially been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur, who would have taken the throne ahead of Henry had he not died of an unknown ailment at age 15. While Catherine had always maintained that her marriage had never been consummated, Henry contested that his marriage to her should never have been permitted in the first place. Throw into the mix that Catherine's nephew, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, was basically holding the Pope hostage, and Henry can hardly have been surprised when his request was denied. He was, however, outraged, and became perhaps the first man to ever have been so thoroughly pissed off about being married to a Spanish princess. In what might be considered the greatest lengths ever gone to by a human being to get what they want, Henry essentially started his own religion. He pronounced himself leader of the new Protestant Church of England, and changed the state religion of England from Catholicism to Anglicanism. With that, he no longer required the permission of the Pope to do anything, and he was free to divorce whomever he wished. He swiftly got rid of Catherine, and married his younger sweetheart Anne Boleyn. I suspect we are all at least somewhat familiar with the story from there, with the various deaths and executions of several of his future partners. It really is impossible to overstate the significance of this fascinating period, and I will certainly be covering it in a future History Licks episode. But at this point, we must bring our attention back to the Bodleian Library. As you might imagine, books in the 16th century were very unlike the books of today. Despite the development of Johannes Gutenberg's printing press in the mid-14th century, the vast majority of books had been handwritten by monks and scribes, who often spent years crafting them. They were typically very expensive, and often resided in the private collections of the rich. One other thing they shared in common was their content, which, in a society as pious as 16th century Europe, was typically religious. Once Henry installed the new church, the religious content of many of these old books was all of a sudden inaccurate. To be found possessing such a book could lead to an accusation of heresy, and to be found guilty of heresy would generally result in the victim being burned alive at the stake. Suffice to say, most owners of these books wanted to get rid of them pretty bloody quickly, and the easiest way to do that was to destroy them. And so, over the course of the 16th century, the collection of England's books and Oxford's library dwindled, until Bodley swooped in to save the day in 1598. Four years later, the Bodleian Library opened. Due to the value of the books, two strict laws were enforced upon students who wished to use them. Firstly, no book was permitted to leave the library. Students were welcome to study them within the walls of the Bodleian, but under no circumstances were they able to take them home. Indeed, decades later, in 1645, in the midst of the English Civil War, King Charles I, while resident at Trinity College, just a stone's throw away, sent one of his servants to the Bodleian to collect some reading material. A short while later, the servant returned with a note, on which the library had politely written, No man is entitled to take these books, not even a king. 
The second law imposed on students was that there was to be no fire in the library. That may sound like a given to us, but the library had no heating until the 1840s, and no artificial lighting until 1925. You might expect that both of these ancient laws would have been revoked in recent times, but surprisingly they have not been. To this day, no books are permitted to leave the premises, and before they are granted access to the library's collection, every new reader must take the following oath. I hereby undertake not to remove from the library, nor to mark, deface, nor injure in any way, any volume, document, or other belonging to it or in its custody, not to bring into the library or kindle therein any fire or flame, and not to smoke in the library. Shortly after its foundation in 1610, the Bodleian became a copyright library. Since that year, it has been entitled to one copy of every book published in England, or more recently the United Kingdom. Yes, that does include some rubbish ones. People often ask about Fifty Shades of Grey, and I can confirm that the library does indeed have its very own copy. A decade later, in 1620, the library's collection had surpassed 16,000 volumes. I'm sure you'll be interested to hear that, as of today, the collection of the library exceeds 14 million volumes. That's almost three times the number of English Wikipedia articles on the internet. As you stand in the old school's quad, there are a few things that might catch your attention. Firstly, there are two skylights on the stone floor of the quad, one in the far right corner and one to the left. Beneath your feet is the Gladstone Link, originally a tunnel that connected the library with the Radcliffe camera, which we'll be discussing in the next episode, though that tunnel has now been expanded into several stories of reading rooms and shelving space, all of which begins just inches beneath your feet. Pictures of this can be found on the History Leaks website. You'll also notice the Latin school names posted above the doors surrounding the quad. As you might guess, these rooms once housed the lectures and exams of those various subjects, and it is those rooms that give the old school's quad its name. You will certainly notice the Tower of Five Orders, forming the eastern entrance to the quad. Each story boasts details from each of the five orders of classical architecture, Doric, Ionic, Tuscan, Corinthian, and Composite. At the top of the tower, you will see a statue of King James I of England, handing out promotional copies of his shiny new Bible to the angel Gabriel and St. Frideswide. But if Elizabeth I didn't die until 1603, why is there a statue of King James in a library built in 1602, I hear you ask? Well, the quad itself was actually completed in 1619. By 1602, the western block of the quad was the only portion that had been finished. Sitting in front of the entrance of this western block, identifiable by a surprising lack of windows, is a rather magnificent statue. Surely, this man must be Thomas Bodley. Well, no, actually. The references to Thomas Bodley are surprisingly scarce. Take a look at the drainpipe in the corner to the left of the statue. You'll notice the initials TB pressed into the wall fixtures. If you continue looking up the drainpipe, you will come to a row of grotesques, those stone faces, and once again you can notice Bodley's initials, crafted in stone, four or five from the left of the drainpipe. These initials also appear on the opposite row of grotesques. The statue is actually of a man called William Herbert, who was the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford in the 1630s. He had very little to do with the development of the library, but he did have lots of money, and like many rich men of history, he wanted a statue of himself erected in an important place. Any fans of Shakespeare among you may well have heard of Mr. William Herbert. You may recall the mysterious Mr. W.H., the fair youth to whom many of the writer's sonnets were addressed. While there is no conclusive evidence for who this potential lover was, many scholars consider William Herbert the most likely candidate. For the record, should you wish to enter the divinity school that we spoke about earlier, 
You can do so by entering through the glass doors behind the statue. There is a small entrance fee, but I assure you that it is well worth it. I invite you now to head out of the Old School's Quad through the southern entrance and into Radcliffe Square, considered by many to be the most beautiful square in the world. It's home to the magnificent Radcliffe Camera, the imposing University Church, and the illustrious All Souls College, which, until recently, boasted the most difficult exam in the world. We'll be covering all of that and more in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Christine and Michael, from whom I've received my first emails over at History Licks. It's so nice to hear that people are actually enjoying this stuff, and hopefully you guys are the first of many. I look forward to seeing you next time.